it's almost like a, um, a Lehman moment in that what happened with Lehman on, on Friday when they were in the middle of their situation, they didn't think they had a credit problem. But by Monday, they were bankrupt because of the cascading effects when you stop payments. In their case, it was short-term funding uh, markets that weren't allowing them to roll and get the, the, the credit, credit they needed for payments on a Monday. Well, to a large extent, that's the frightening part that's now going through the market actually as we talk. And a point I'd add also in this sovereign debt, um, Adam, is that Russia, Russia took, got out of the US treasuries oh, in 2018 and has primarily went to gold and to a, a heightened level of liquidity. And it has about a trillion dollars of open liquidity and about two to 300 billion is used in short-term funding. That is overnight funding for a lot of the uh, banks or institutions, et cetera, around the world. And every time we have a credit problem, it's usually associated with overnight short-term money, money fund uh, funding. This is, this is how the contagion starts, how the, it starts with credit. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart here, welcoming you back for another special interview made all the more important by the current ongoing developments in Ukraine. The world has quickly become a less stable place over the first two months of 2022. Financial system stability, especially in the all-important bond market, was eroding at a concerning pace prior to last week. But Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine is serving as an accelerant to the situation. To give us an understanding of the key risks to monitor, we welcome investor and market analyst Gordon Long to the program. Gordon has issued several recent warnings about the credit markets in his latest investor letters, and I'm eager to hear him explain why. Gordon, thank you so much for taking the time today to join us. Adam, thank you very much for asking me. I appreciate it. Ta well, thanks. Our timing couldn't have been any better, actually. You know what? Uh, I, 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 you were the man to reach out to, and uh, man, then this weekend happened. And you're right; it just made it even more relevant. So let's let's dive right in here. Um, I got a lot of specific questions that take into account what's going on right now um, in in Ukraine. Uh, but before I ask them, I just want to ask you the question I kick off all of these interviews with, which is, what is your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? I'm concerned, but then I, you know. I'm always concerned when there's risk at stake, but uh, th this year, you know, at a highest level, we can say we're in the fourth turning. And if you look at any of the long-term cyclical charts, one of the things that's consistent is we're in about a three-year window where all of these long-term cycles are reaching bottoms. And of course, then you get into those who've studied the fourth turning. So you get a lot of major social change for whatever reason, and that comes with economic and financial change. And clearly that's what we're in the, in the, in the midst of. And uh, it's a, this is the first time in my lifetime, I've been through a lot of market crashes and uh, they, I didn't see this, this kind of geopolitical issues and social unrest I've seen before. So uh, the bottom line is, so we're very concerned about 2022 uh, there'll be a lot of money made, but a lot of money lost in it. So just make sure you're paying attention. Okay, great. And for folks who maybe aren't familiar with the term fourth turning, um, it is a descriptor of uh, generational cycles that, that society goes through uh, that are each categorized by 
certain types of, of developments. Fourth turning tend to, tends to have a lot of upheaval. I actually interviewed one of the two demographers that uh, that whose research basically defines the fourth turning, a guy named Neil Howe. Uh, if you haven't yes. yet watched that and want to, uh, you can watch that video right here. Um, all right, Gordon. So as I said, um, we're recording this on uh, Monday, February 28th. Um, over the weekend, uh, things have really intensified in Ukraine. Um, so uh, Russia made an incursion there on Wednesday night last week, U.S. time. Uh, over the weekend, uh, things basically escalated there. I think it's becoming a more tracted, so far at least, a more... Um, uh, protracted engagement than maybe a lot of people thought it was going to be. I think a lot of folks thought it was going to be over really quickly. Um, so you have written that um, we had this very um, unstable uh, situation developing in the credit markets. I think you referred to them as brittle, and that was pre-Ukraine invasion. And you're saying that the Ukraine invasion is now really adding an awful lot of additional instability to the system. Can you explain why? Uh, it's because of the, it's actually, it is centered on Ukraine, but it's more about our policy response. It's really shaking the market right now, Adam. And I say ours, this is the whole area of sanctions. Uh, we've been doing sanctions for years, uh, at least the U.S. So I don't think there's anything really new in that regard, nor new to, to Russia. It's the degree that we've now taken them and specific that we're now uh, uh, putting sanctions against a central bank and specifically the Russian central bank, and then second to major banks within uh, Russia, not all of them. And there's a, well, you can see the rubles dropped 50% in Russia here in the weekend. And the last time we had a ruble crash or drop like that, that was the LTCM crisis and that brought the market down. So I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just trying to say the magnitude uh, of, of doing that because the, it's almost like a, um, a Lehman moment in that what happened with Lehman on, on Friday when they were in the middle of their situation, they didn't think they had a credit problem, but by Monday they were bankrupt because of the cascading effects when you stop payments. In their case, it was short-term funding uh, markets that weren't allowing them to roll and get the, the, the credit, credit they needed for payments on a Monday. Well. To a large extent, that's the frightening part that's now going through the market, actually, as we talk and all weekend. I'm not saying that it's about crash. Please don't. I'm just trying to say these are symptoms we've seen before, because when you start to put uh, limits on, flows of money stop. You don't know whether you're going to get the money uh, from which bank, because they don't know whether they're tied into what part of the credit flows that are coming out of Russian banks and central banks to kind of net, net it out. So that, that's the ripple effect, but the ripple effect is already in, in an areas that in, in, um, in uh, sovereign credit was having problems before this happened. Um, in corporate credit, it's a whole discussion in itself and soon to evolve in, the, in consumer credit. All right. So if we can, let's let's kind of pick each of those apart. And, and first at a high level, you know, sort of what I hear you saying is, is uh, the economy is is just so hyper connected these days that it's almost impossible to know if you cut the flows of money in one place, what that ripple effect is going to have on the rest of the system. And it seems like we've 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 now put some pretty. Uh, pretty substantial blockages in place in the system, or that we're scrambling to do that right now in terms of a lot of these Russian sanctions. And we don't really know yet um, 
again, what impact that's going to have and who is exposed to that. So, Precisely. You know, yeah, and I'm, I'm curious if we may be seeing over the next week or two headlines of hedge funds or pensions or whatnot that were much more exposed uh, than we realized or maybe even they realized and that are now kind of waking up to that. So it'd be really interesting to see what happens down there. But you mentioned that there's sort of issues across the, the credit spectrum here, sovereign debt, corporate debt. Um, uh, there's other types of debt you talk about as well, emerging market bonds and a few other things. And maybe we could just pick each of those apart briefly. So you said that the, the, the let's start with the sovereign debt. Um, you know, the, yeah. That's the, the debt of nations. Um, uh, we have a lot of, you know, certainly over the past couple of decades, um, many nations have been adding debt at uh, a greater and greater magnitude. I think we could have had a big discussion before what's happened in Ukraine about kind of the global debt overhang. Um, but what was what was worrying you about the sovereign debt market going into what's just happened uh, with Russia and Ukraine? We, uh, we watch uh, credit default swaps for sovereign debt fairly closely. And frankly, it's sometimes it's just like watching paint dry. There's not much change in it. But over the last six months, we've noticed it very much accelerating and increasing. Right. And specifically- and, 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 Gordon, Sorry to interrupt you, but for folks that don't understand what a credit default swap is, could you just give a brief definition? Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Adam. Uh, thank you for your, uh, clarifying that. Yeah, credit default swaps are basically an insurance policy that, in, that you take out to protect you, yourself or your investment from a default from one of the, uh, the sovereign debts that you might be buying. So the uh, debt of America is U.S. Treasuries. Uh, if you've got them and you think there's a risk when you can buy these credit default swaps, they're typically very inexpensive, but to protect you from the possibilities of a, of a default. But the, these, they have been increasing and we've noticed in the last 30 days, and we were just basic discussions of Ukraine. It wasn't a heightened situation. Um, they, were, they had really climbed in up, up in last 30, as I said, the last 30 days. And of course, in the last week and with the inflation having exploded even further. So to give you, a, you know, a perspective on that, that's something that moves very, very little. Uh, Russia's uh, credit defaults have surged 70%. They've been cut to junk. Their default rate's now at 6%. Uh, Poland is shot up to 65%. So you can understand that's kind of an immediate that's happened here in the last week. But it spilled over into the Scandinavian company, uh, countries with Finland and, and Sweden because they could be potentially at risk with a NATO expansion or, or, or Putin's assessment of a potential NATO uh, expansion there. They're in the 35%, much significantly higher. The EU members themselves, uh, usually five, eight percent, are up in the 15, 20 percent, and what we used to call the peripherals in the in the in the 40 percent range. So they're dramatic, and and when those credit defaults come uh, grow, it's costing people a lot more money. And and we have to understand too that these debts sit on banks around the world with Basel II agreements, and there's something called value at risk. So when the credit is, is, is more exposed, it forces banks, irrelevant of actually whether they're involved in this, their banks um, have to charge changing their strategies or adjusting their books automatically for value at risk. This is, this is how the contagion starts, how the, it starts with credit. And then it starts to potentially, and the worrying part right now, and, and peers, everybody we're looking at it, is what, what the collateral that's underly, underlying that. So that's big, a big part of the problem. 
And a point I'd add also in this sovereign debt, um, Adam, is that Russia, Russia took, got out of the US treasuries oh, in 2018 and has primarily went to gold and to a, a heightened level of liquidity. And it has about a trillion dollars of open liquidity and about two to 300 billion is used in short-term funding. That is overnight funding for a lot of the uh, banks or institutions, et cetera, around the world. And every time we have a credit problem, it's usually associated with overnight short-term money, money fund uh, funding. And that comes out of things like a reverse repos. And I, don't, I won't get into those technicalities, but that, that's what's stemming in the sovereign, sovereign debt. Okay, so um, thank you. That's super helpful. Um, and, and just to process it in my mind here, um, you're saying that uh, uh, you know credit issues. I'm going to say credit crises. Even um, they often they're at the, the the base of them is is a lack of liquidity. That liquidity dries up, uh, and then and then you know all of a sudden all these people across the system that are are dependent upon continued access. Uh, to, to credit, uh, they start getting into trouble. And so if, if we're all of a sudden sort of shutting off uh, the hundreds of billions of dollars that Russia was sort of lending out overnight to lots of banks around the world, they're either going to have to get that money from somewhere else, or they're going to have some, some liquidity issues. Um, you talked about the, the credit default swaps um, all dramatically rising in price relatively recently. And, and that's, um, that both just sort of makes credit more expensive for the system that's relying on it. Um, significantly makes it more expensive. Yeah, and there's a chart you, sh you shared in your latest uh, letter here, I'll put up here, but it shows uh, Bloomberg showing how uh, financial conditions, even here in the US, uh, have tightened quickly, really over the past, uh, you know, week, week and a half. Um, so it's not just, you know, weaker countries around the world, it's even happening here in the US. There's another chart you put up here, uh, from Goldman Sachs showing how kind of the global financial conditions index uh, is tightening as well, um, which, you know, what I want to sort of underscore here is that, you know, tightening basically means that credit's becoming more expensive. And when you have a system that's so dependent upon credit, um, you know, the more expensive it becomes, the sort of less uh, bounty you have left in the system to do other things. And I guess rising credit default swaps too, or maybe just an indication that people are a little bit worried that default risk is now higher. And obviously if you have a default, well then, you know, then you can really start getting some cascades going on here. So am I kind of putting my finger on the right reasons to be concerned about this? Uh, yeah, yes, uh, absolutely, Adam. But, you know, I need to caution, you know, I'm saying these are potential issues and we've seen these before. Don't underestimate that right now the central banks themselves, I can assure you, uh, they have spent most of the weekend and will this week going through how to ensure that the liquidity is maintained. Uh, the last time we had, I'll call it a real liquidity shock, was during COVID. And as you saw then, the federal, the banks came out, Federal Reserve, with uh, facilities. Uh, we actually started buying uh, corporate bonds, for example, in the set with the, the secondary market corporate credit facility at the time. So the, uh, the, the, the Federal Reserve and the central banks right now have to decide what needs to be done uh, and how it might be done. And that's what everybody's really watching and the, the clock's ticking for. And to put it into just perspective, um, 
right now, just in the US, we finance about $1.6 trillion overnight, every night, 1.6 trillion. And I, I suspect it's even much higher um, at, at the, in the last few days. So <clears throat> that two to 300 billion of Russian money that is in short-term funding is in some central banks. It isn't just us that is funding overnight. A lot of the central banks, EU uh, specifically are. And so what happens to that? Uh, what, what happens to that capital? And is it available? Because as I say, it's overnight. So you're, you're literally buy, lending short or borrowing short and lending long. So you, you, you have to have that money if you're a lender um, or you're in trouble. You're, you're on the wrong side of the, uh, of the, um, of the lending curve. Okay, right. So the, the system really is dependent on, or a lot of players in the system are really dependent upon being able to get those funds night after night after night um, to, to do what they're doing or else they get into trouble. So it sounds like you're saying, look, um, you're not staying up nights right now worrying that the system's going to kind of snarl to a halt tomorrow. You think that the other world central banks are going to find a way to step in and provide that liquidity on an ongoing basis, at least in the near term. But this is a good segue to a question about just the Fed. And, and, they, I, and, they, and I, I don't know the form that it'll take. But if, if the problem is mounting, they will. And, and maybe I, I wasn't clear. The, the issue was they, they anticipated that the sanctions were coming. They did not believe that it was going to be directed at the central bank of Russia. And as of last Friday, last Thursday, um, even Germany was saying we need another 30 days. So when, when Biden made his speech, he was talking about sanctions. He wasn't talking about that. But Germany changed its position dramatically, changed its position on NATO, sending military equipment. It did 180 degrees and said uh, the, the sanctions were a go, um, as some of the other uh, G7 members said, on central banks. So it, it, it's caught the markets flat, the credit markets flat footed. And that's the adjustment process. And, and uh, so it's uh, today, tomorrow, it's kind of flowing through the markets. That's why I thought our, your timing couldn't have been any better. Yeah, thanks. And specifically that that important reversal you're talking about, policy reversal by Germany, uh, that happened, I think, Saturday, right? That happened over yeah. this weekend. So it's something that, that you know, we're still very much in real time, you know, trying to react to here. Um, okay, so- uh, And so I, is the rest of the world trying to figure out, as I said, where is all of that Russian liquidity? And where, you know, how are they going to operate? And are they going to start moving? You know, we get into the whole discussion on the SWIFT, SWIFT system. And will it force them to start moving their money through? There's an alternative. And that's the Chinese have an alternative system. They've been anticipating this sort of thing for a long time. And, it, and what everybody's trying to read is, uh, I don't want to get too technical here, but just is this going to be the catalyst that starts to make things happen faster. And there's been a big movement because the United States has been using these sanctions so consistently. Because remember the sanctions go not only against the country you're targeting it at, but any country who deals with that country. And so they get caught in it and they've tried to protect themselves by moving away from the US dollar. And more and more countries have tried to reduce their uh, currency reserves from the United from the U.S. dollar to other areas, so we get into the euro. All right. So I'm really glad you've just mentioned all that. You mentioned the word SWIFT. If you could just very quickly define for folks uh, what the SWIFT system is, 
um, and I'll take a crack at it real quick. It's just, it's really how banks send uh, money to each other basically around the world. Um, but uh, if you can talk about the importance of the Swiss system and the role that it has here as a weapon against Russia here, if, if you know, by cutting them off from that SWIFT platform. It's, it's nothing more than, to be simple, a glorified email system is really what it is. Uh, but it's, as, it's, well, it has tremendous amount of security and confidence between the banks. So you can trust the content as, in fact, uh, money that's being transferred or commitments that are being... Uh, being made. So it's the same, the equivalent would be if you got your email cut off, you couldn't communicate nor to anybody nor anybody to you. And if you're in the middle of a business transaction, how do you go forward? And that's in the bank's case, when money is measured in seconds and milliseconds and, and uh, days, uh, this, this is a big deal because suddenly you're caught on a liquidity problem or a counter, what they call a counterparty risk. Okay, so by cutting Russia off from SWIFT, uh, obviously we isolate them, you know, economically from being able to, you know, send and receive transactions. Um, we, but, but Adam, we as much hurt everybody else around the world as, uh, as Russia. That's, what, that's what's missing. Right, People, I, know, I, know, I know one of your concerns, which we'll get into in just a second, is the contagion factor of this, right? Which is we're not just hurting Russia, we're creating kind of dominoes that are going to blow back and, and hurt a number of other players around here. And I want to get but to not that. Just, just not, just be, not just because of the contagion in credit. I'm saying that, in fact, it, it hurts them directly. Any of the players that deal with Russia, uh, even if they have credit, it hurts their whole trade uh, process. And so they start adjusting. You're, they'll start adjusting commodity prices very quickly because of it. That, that's the point I'm trying to differentiate from credit to the whole buying and supplying in the, in the supply chain um, of what you take as risk and preparation and order flows. Great clarification, thank you. Yes, um, it, it, it does exacerbate some of the credit risk we were talking about, but I was right there with you. It's, it's, we're basically interrupting global trade, right? And what exactly. I hear you saying is, is um, A, you know, TBD, we're gonna find out all the ways in which there are knock-on effects there that we sort of didn't expect from this and we'll have to react to those. But on a higher level, uh, you know, I think what you're saying is, is look, you know, the, the world for a long time, there have been countries around the world that have been trying to figure out how to become less dependent upon the U.S. dollar. It's the world's reserve currency. It's the petrodollar. Uh, it's how you, you know, pay for oil. And um, you've had countries like Russia and China and Iran and others that have been trying to create, you know, trade arrangements that settle in other types of currencies. It sounds like you're saying you think this is going to potentially really accelerate that and that this could be, you know, kind of a catalytical moment for a chunk of the world to really get more serious about coming up with competing systems, both to SWIFT and to trade in non-dollars. Is that all correct? That is correct. There's, there's almost no doubt um, that, that a lot of countries are, are frustrated uh, with American policy. They don't agree with American policy in some cases. And, and, and they're, they're really third parties to this issue. And it's forced them to move more and more away uh, from the dollar. But the problem expands itself, uh, Adam. It's not the US dollar just, it's the Euro dollar. And remember the Euro dollar is based on the, is the United States dollar that's being leveraged through the entire global banking system. So we create, you know, the old, 
the old theory was that we create a, we put a dollar in our bank account here, the banks can lend out $10. Those days are long gone, but let's just be simple here for a second. One of those dollars goes to a European bank, they lend out $10. But if that, and it just keeps cascading all around the world of that debt just keeps growing all based on $1 that was lent out here in the $10 and one of it went to Europe. And so what happens is where's the collateral to underpin that in the Euro dollar system? So if the dollars start to weaken or there aren't as many dollars out there, there's a whole contraction that's, that is forced to, forced to begin to happen. And the underlying part of it is something that, and again, I'll be technical here called rehypothecation, where the collateral is not identified and people can't track the collateral. For example, you have a car, you've lent the money, the car, the car is in fact a collateral. Well, if you really track it, that car could be on figuratively on 30 or 40 people's books as collateral against their loan. And that's what's happening in the, I'm being very simplistic here, in the Euro system, the Euro dollar system. And that, that's why even minor little disruptions here um, can have such profound impacts and force people to take actions that they don't necessarily want to take. I mentioned earlier something called VAR, value at risk, that are Basel II, Basel III, are forced requirements in the lending and banking institutions. Okay, great. So, you know, for the folks that aren't as familiar with all the technical jargon as, as you, Gordon, the underlying point that we're making here is that uh, the system is, again, very hyper-connected uh, and um, uh, you can have a failure in one node that then triggers all sorts of other repercussions, a bunch, a bunch of different nodes. And all of a sudden people are, are having to react to that and, and oftentimes making decisions or choices that in a stable world, they, they wouldn't be making, but they kind of have to make it out of necessity here. And then the danger obviously is that that could maybe cascade out of control at some point. So you used a term that I, I just want to dig into a little bit more with you. Um, in your latest paper, your conclusion was that uh, the world is on the verge of a contraction. Um, I'd love to have you just sort of explain what you mean by that uh, writ large. Um, and then you say, especially if an oil price shock exacerbates inflation. And um, are you worried about an oil price shock because of Russia potentially, you know, their supply going offline? Or are there larger issues around oil that make you zero in on the price shock there? Well, we really don't know what's going to happen with the, the supply itself when you get into combat and war situations and they escalate. But, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I actually do. I think oil is trading 115 here as of this morning. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was $10 and $40 and, and the explosion we've had in the last couple of years. Um, but I do see the, the energy complex um, with some serious issues going forward. But it, it was here before Ukraine. Um, our energy, for example, in the United States, We've moved from being an ener net energy exporter a year and a half ago to now importing between 200 and 500 uh, million barrels a day of oil from Russia. So the dependencies have changed and of course the flows. And so the dis disruption is, 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 is there um, and is a, is a major concern that we have. But the question you're asking is a slowdown. 
before this happened, we are seeing globally, um, we've had a tremendous rebound out of COVID, no question about it. But we've pumped literally trillions and trillions, about 30 trillion worldwide into the economy. And when you throw this much money at an economy, you got too, too many dollars chasing too few goods and a disruptive supply chain. We know the whole story there, but that's peaked and it's coming off and we're, slow, we're slowing down. And uh, you can see it in the global PMIs. They're, they're, they're falling at a pretty rapid rate. Earnings is still very good here in America um, currently. And I expect they won't be too bad for the next quarter or so, but markets price out six to eight months, Adam, as you well know. And, and what's happening is our PEs, our price to earnings ratios are so high. The, you know, there's 10, 10 companies, uh, the, the, we used to call the FANGs, uh, well-known that are the dominant part of all of these indexes um, and are all held with by passive invent, um, investment through ETFs. And th those, those PEs are well north of 30, 35, and typically when you start to get slowing, you move your PE start to fall down into the 15 range. Well, right now, if you look at the PEs and, and you take out those big 10, the PEs are running around 18 or 19. So if the PEs on, and, and that's with a blast majority of them trading below their 200 day moving average. And so if the PEs need to come down to 15, if you get into a recession, they often drop to eight or 10, but they, they need to come down. That means some of these big players with P's well north of 30 may be taking down to 25, not just on slowing, but also because rates are being brought up by the Federal Reserve. We're anticipating some fairly significant increases potentially over the next, uh, the next six months. So that's putting pressure on them. Those PEs start to come down. Even though the earnings are there, the market con contracts. And that's what I'm referring to on a contraction uh, that we see coming. Didn't mean to be too technical there or long-winded, but that, that's the slowing. And this shock we're, we're, we're putting in here compounds the costs associated with that credit that goes into these high-tech companies. They, they track very, very closely to interest rates and, and the Federal Reserve balance sheet or, or reserve uh, uh, central bank balance sheets. Okay, so we've got the cost of credit looking like it's going to continue uh, becoming more expensive, both from just the tightening program that the Fed already had planned, right? But now we're having all the issues in the uh, overnight lending markets that you were talking about that, that's in the, the rising in the credit default swap rates and stuff like that. So um, we're, we're seeing credit get more and more expensive, which is going to be a drag. Uh, both on asset prices and on economic growth. Um, we've talked in this program past bunch of weeks about how economic growth does seem to be uh, continuing to slow uh, both in the US and elsewhere in the world. Um, if I could put words in your mouth, Gordon, I would say you probably envision sort of a stagflationary scenario this year, correct me if I'm wrong, but slowing economic growth, but inflation still remaining protracted. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess my question where I'm going with all this, Gordon, is um, looking out into the future now. So we've talked about um, the, the general instability of the, the credit system. You've just talked about why equity prices probably need to come down. Um, we've talked about how what's going on in Ukraine is kind of shaking up the box of risk here, just making things all a little bit more risky. So as you look out uh, across 2022 and maybe a little bit beyond, um, 
what, what are the assets that you think um, make sense for the average investor to consider here? Which ones do you think you know, may fare well given this type of outlook? And are there any that you just wouldn't touch at all given what you see? A good question, uh, Adam. Uh, I think we've seen gold absolutely explode or it's pulled back slightly. So the whole area of hard assets are certainly um, need to be seriously considered. And a lot of people have been in and some of them are well-priced. And so I, I um, minister or suggest caution there, but you will see uh, commodity prices uh, with pullbacks, but, but continue with this inflationary pressures um, are continuing to build. We could be at the beginnings of a commodity super cycle uh, uh, specifically. But to, to answer the question directly, maybe we, we, we miss talking, um, Adam, about what's going on in corporate debt. And we, our, our, our concept here, our discussion has been in, in, in sovereign debt and the global debt structures around the world that underpin it. But an actual fact, I'm more concerned right now with corporate debt, and that gets into treasury bonds um, um, indirectly, but the spreads um, in, in corporate debt, investment, junk bonds, high yields. And, and, and where, where I'm going on that is, is that the, the, the drop that we're seeing in junk bonds, high yield that is, has been quite alarming. And, and sorry, when and you say drop, you, you mean drop in prices, correct? It dropped in price, yields going up, spreads getting wider against risk-free, for example, the U.S. Treasury uh, bond. Yes, exactly. So the the that the high yield is dropping, and we have, um, according to the Bank of International Settlements, twenty percent of all of the S and P uh, companies now are what they refer to as zombies, and that they, that report was uh, well a year and a year and a half ago. And so by a zombie, what they're referring to is that the companies are not making enough clear profit in discounted free cash flow to actually cover their interest payments. So they're having to borrow to keep the company funded. And that funding is based on the discussions we've had, but associated specifically to corporate bond um, costs for them to do that. And if they can't get the money because in the, the, the cost of it in the corporate, there's a big, big problem. Now that's just the, the high yield. And in the investment grade, the vast majority of them are now triple C, which is one level right on the urge, verge of being junk. And in, in fact, they have to be, to be investment grade, a lot of uh, covenants are structured in such a way that they can only buy investment grade. So they're questionable. And Moody's and everybody is warning very strongly that they could slip down into junk, which would cause some problems. And the last time we had this, as I mentioned earlier with, with COVID shock, um, this, the Fed stepped in and started buying all those corporate bonds to make sure they had enough liquidity. And they did that um, and drove the prices um, up dramatically on those bonds, took down the yields to allow them to fund themselves. And they started that in June, right after COVID, in, a, in something called the second um, SMCCF. It was a facility they put out. They started it in June. They stopped it in January of last year, 2021, but they sold all of those bonds um, and ended that here in just the past September. And ever since then, they've been falling fairly significantly. But there's a big drop 
from there to what we saw just with the impact of a COVID, minor COVID shock. And that, that is itself is probably more of a consequence than some of the discussions I've been labeling here in the sovereign debt is in this corporate. And that gets back to your question. The, if we have problems there, and if the Fed doesn't step in once again to do something like that, then, then it starts to almost guarantee a recession. And remember that we're at the end of a 10-year business cycle, one of the longest business cycles we've had because of quantitative easing of bringing demand forward. And you keep bringing it forward, but you create a hole on the other side. And so it's a natural consequence of a demands of, of a business cycle that comes to an end. And that's what we're kind of fighting. And we've put all this money in and into the system, have extended it, but it's a natural phenomenon for it to fall off. And so if we have this other shock, as I just described in corporates, it'll accelerate that. And if we have a recession, especially with the Fed raising rates now, if you can believe it, it it's a, a potential tremendous policy mistake, potentially. Uh, that's what's worrying for going forward. And so it, it, it begs questions of whether there's investments in the bond market. It, that's, it begs questions of what's happening with the dollar, of with, with the twin deficits and what the dollar might do. There could be some significant weakness in the dollar. So what you buy if it's dollar denominated in itself is, is problematic. Um, uh, the shift even uh, as simple, Adam, as moving from growth to value are, are consequences. There's, there's, we have nine different areas that we believe are consequences uh, of this sort of thing that we, we publish um, as potential. I hate to be negative on this, but you know we're talking about a situation here that is just exploding here in the last 10 days. That, that's okay. And, and, and you're not that dissimilar from a lot of guests we've had on this program here. So don't. I'm glad, don't to, I'm glad to hear that. I hate to, hate to be crack, being too negative. Well, really, we're not looking but, for. But Adam, to be I need to stress too that the, these create opportunities. You know, the, the Chinese symbol of crisis is, is, you know, danger, but at the same time, opportunity. So if you're really studying this and you're paying attention, um, not only can you protect your wealth, and I strongly. Uh, suggest that people just don't leave it to others, get involved. But there's a chance if, if, if you can do it well in common sense to do really well in this period, but to just ignore it and not pay attention. Uh, I caution you to, I caution you. All right. Well, look, there's, there's a zillion questions that even just your last answer triggered in me. We don't have time to go through all of them, but, but I'll try to kind of land the plane here on the original topic I asked you, which was, you know, what are the what are the assets that you are more favorable on now? Um, it sounds like you've said a golden heart assets seem to make sense. I'll interpret what you just said there about corporate and high yield debt, which is uh, you think there's a lot of risk in that space right now. Um, so you probably wouldn't be touching those. Um, it sounds like if, if things continue to degrade there and we tip into recession, well, there's a lot of equities that are probably not going to do very well, right? My, my assumption is we'd have some market correction along with that, that recession. And one could say, hey, just sort of stay away from stocks in general, but maybe there are sectors that you think look good. I don't know. So when you talk about opportunity, let me ask it maybe differently. What are the opportunities that, that you're keeping your eye out for here that if you see develop would make you want to deploy capital? Energy, the entire energy con uh, structure. And this isn't just about um, the Ukraine and Russia 
It has to do with the imbalances that we now have. I mentioned earlier with the United States becoming an importer, but this tremendous world movement of going from based on climate change, of going to green energy and the, right into ESG and the other kinds of supporting um, movements that are going on. And uh, put it into perspective, Mark Carney at the COP a conference in Glasgow, this was the major climate, uh, identified 130 trillion. Let me repeat that, 130 trillion of committed money around the world. He doc documents exactly what all these players have, have committed to, to help fund movements and shifts to green energy. There's tremendous problems because of a lack of funding in fossils and carbon-based as we get away from carbon-based. On the other hand, there's exploding money going into new areas um, that are going to be, I believe, huge, absolutely huge. Um, and it isn't just electric bolt and it isn't just solar and wind. I mean, a lot of those are fully priced. I'm talking about new fuel, fuel cells such as hydrogen, the magnitude of using hydrogen, how we can generate electricity and, and new tools of doing that, of elements of nuclear that people are totally unfamiliar with. It just goes on. And that's a huge amount of money looking for a lot of investments. Um, so where there's problems, there's also tremendous opportunities. Great. And then the commodities infrastructure that supports a lot of those new kinds of uh, investments, cobalt, lithium, and the, the list just goes on. So it's All a very right, exciting time for us, uh, Adam, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it sounds like what you're saying there, you know, even if the economy kind of goes into recession in the near term, um, there's so much committed capital for that sector that that sector may still just have a big tailwind, you know, almost irrespective of what the general economy is doing. All right, Gordon. And then, so as we as we begin to wrap up here, I, I, it's not lost on me that I didn't have a chance to ask you in this time about financial repression, which is a topic that you are a very you know, leading authority on, um, and that provides kind of even greater context to what's happening, you know, on, on the macro level here. And I hate to tease people, but I think we're going to have to leave that for the next time we, we have you on the channel here. Uh, but I'll let you say anything briefly about that, if you like, just to sort of whet people's appetite. Uh, and if you can, in your answer too, just if there's anything else we haven't talked about that you think should be on the mind of just the average investor who's watching this video, who is trying to be a prudent steward of their wealth through a lot of the, the tumult that you've just predicted is ahead, um, please feel free to share that counsel as well. No, thank you very much, Adam. Yeah, um, I've done a lot of work on financial repression over the years. And I, I, what I would suggest to people is it's always been about low, uh, real, negative, real interest rates, allowing you to really, for the government to get out from under their debt. It's a proven macro prudential strategy. And it worked at the end of the Second World War. It's worked a number of times and it's being implemented now. Um, with especially with inflation that high, and that's why it's being pushed. But I would challenge people to understand this whole movement to green and green energy is actually another form of financial repression using regulatories. And we get into things like carbon taxes, carbon credits, and carbon offsets that are now trading at phenomenal kinds of dollars. So there's there's new markets people haven't even heard of that are that are now appear uh, now appearing uh, on the scene. I would advise everybody that's out there to really take advantage uh, of these opportunities. They don't only come along once in a lifetime, they're dangerous. Clearly some of my comments have suggested 
uh, dangers there. But I, on the other hand, uh, I've been in this business a long time. I've never seen better opportunities around the world than I'm currently seeing right now. And it's a, but it's a matter of applying this capital very carefully and getting people who truly understand what's, not, what's going on. Too many people, just the last point I make, Adam, have just bought ETFs. And there's nothing wrong with those if you're in a growth environment in a, in a, in a growth area. And, and because we've been putting so much money out, they've been almost a no-brainer. And all ETFs went up. But if they have a problem, and I mentioned the top 10 kinds of companies, then ETFs and passives are not the way to go. You need, uh, so I'll call it stock pickers. That's what we're moving into. We're moving into an era, in my mind, of stock picking, which has kind of went by the way. Bought an ETF, you made money for the last five or six years. I think that's changing. All right, Gordon, um, the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses and refers people to are going to have to send you their uh, commission check in the mail because you've just done a phenomenal <laughs> commercial for them. Uh, and you're not the first expert on this channel recently to talk about the fact that we are switching from an era of passive investing to where you're now going to have to become very actively engaged and do all the old due diligence that you know traditionally investors had to do to pick out the the gems from from all the stinkers out there um so anyways uh thank you so much folks if you would like to hear gordon uh, uh come back on this program and and really dive deeply into the mechanics of how financial repression works just let me know in the comments section below um, but otherwise gordon for people that have enjoyed this conversation maybe enjoyed meeting you for the first time on this video where can they go to learn more about you and your work oh thank you very much uh Adam, yes, uh, we have a, a website uh, called uh, matasii, M-A-T-A-S-I-I.com. Uh, we have free videos, free newsletters, um, and we track um, all the things we've been talking about um, for on a subscription basis, but as I said, a lot of free services too. And we welcome anybody to join us at any time. Fantastic. And when we edit this, Gordon, we'll put up the URL there on the screen. Uh, well, Gordon, thank you so much for watching, folks. Um, if you'd like to see more great minds on this program, like Gordon Long, please support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us today, especially with everything swirling in the world the way that it is right now. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Everybody else, thanks for watching. Thank you, Adam.